0: And welcome to the Everything Leaves podcasts. Uh, my name is Nick D'Souza, and I'm here with Kevin Papetti. This is our fourth episode. Kevin, a lot of things have changed this week. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. I just don't know what we're going to talk about. I was I was trying to figure out what has happened, and was doing some research. I was I was hoping maybe like the pretzel prices had changed at Scotia Bank, but I don't think we're going to have much to talk about.
0: Yeah, I know. Like nothing's really happened this week, and like. I feel like a lot of people have almost forgot about the Leafs since our last episode, so hopefully we'll be able to remind them of some of the things that's happened.
1: I hope so. I know a few people were talking about the coaching change in Toronto, and so far the team's been undefeated. Uh, just curious here, do you think the team's legitimately better because of the coaching change, or do you think it's just a fluke? Of course, we're, we're talking about the Marlies.
0: Yep. Yeah, we're talking about the Marlies here, because they're the undefeated team that everyone's talking about right now.
1: Do you think Keith was the problem?
0: Uh, I don't know, but I heard he's already up talking and asking really uncomfortable questions to the Leafs, like Mikheyev, about his uh, soup. I know. Like who is the best soup eaters. That's what I I just saw that on Twitter. I think it was yesterday. You must follow some bad accounts. Yeah, trust me I do.
1: So let's go with let's get started how we always get started here. Who were your three stars of the week? So there was the Vegas game, the Babcock's final game there was Arizona which was a 3-1 uh was it I think it was 3-1 yeah they got a late goal and then they got the Colorado win on Saturday so of those three games who are your three stars of the week
0: uh I mean number one is going to be Sheldon Keefe and I know Sportsnet already has that graphic ready to go so hopefully we (laughs) can get it from them um perfect we'll talk about Keefe more I'm not going to get too much I'm not going to get too much into it now uh, I think he's going to be the majority of our podcast today. Second one, Austin Matthews, looks really good since the coaching change. I think he's been one of the best Leafs throughout the year, but this week has just been even more more of a beast, really. Uh, and the third star, um, I will go with Tyson Berry. Uh, looks like he's kind of come alive since the coaching change as well. And, and I mean, it's, I'm so happy for him because cause he, he scored the goal the other day and it kind of felt like... We had the Tyson Berry of old. What are your three stars?
1: So I'm glad you mentioned Keith and Berry. I was going to mention them, but there's so many players I want to talk about, so I'm going to change mine f- for this week. So I'm going, one, Jason Spezza. I think he's he's really excelled in the puck protection game. Uh, he's a guy who was almost out of the league a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if, if, if Marner would have got hurt. I think Spezza might be out of the league right now, and, and now he's centering Kerfoot and Kapanen, so I, I give him one. I'm gonna give one to Pierre Engvall for his NHL debut, and I think he's been pretty good. I want to talk about Engvall later. Um, for me, I think he's a guy that's got to stay in the lineup for a bit, it's just the way he's playing. But uh, again, we'll get into him a little bit later on. And then the third one, I'm gonna give one to John Tavares for the speech. I don't know what wow. he, I don't know what you thought of the speech, but it fired me up, so I had to give him a I had to give him a star.
0: I I think I loved it because there's always so many jokes about him being a robot and then he just came out of nowhere and just interrupted the whole the the whole like meeting after that game and and came up with that and it was it was amazing. I loved it.
1: I wasn't expecting it.
0: Neither did I. I thought maybe like cuz they showed that little snippet of it and I thought maybe they said like oh John's going to have some words but the fact that he just piped up out of nowhere and came up with that was just incredible.
1: Okay, so there's a lot to get to For this week, Um, let's start with the Vegas game. That's probably the most boring game out of the three, but let's get through it quickly here. So scoreless first. Vegas takes the lead halfway through. The Leafs never seem to score first. Spezza ties it. Vegas scores two quick goals, one being the Barry giveaway. And then really a late comeback attempt. I think it was Hyman that scored. Um, We had that flurry save on Patan. Uh, so again, the Leafs hadn't won. They dropped about, I think they were below 40% winning percentage under Babcock. Uh, you said last episode near the end there that we might be talking about a Keefe, a Keefe coaching change. And, uh, that's, end up, that's, that's what happened. So what have you noticed? Uh, we'll start with the Arizona game. What immediately jumped out, out to you when Keefe was behind the bench?
0: I mean, I I think it's so easy to say that the team looked rejuvenated and they looked like they had more energy. And I think that's – as soon as any kind of coaching change happens, I think that that's automatically what people go to. And with this coaching change, I almost believe it more than kind of any coaching change I've ever seen. Um, Obviously, he got the team the day before the Arizona game, and you're not going to see, like, sudden system changes – any time there's only 24 hours for a, a coach to take over but I'm not gonna lie like I thought the team looked different I thought that they were chasing the puck a lot less under Keefe in that first game they had a lot more shorter passes but just that's kind of the the small real change but I mean the big change was they looked more rejuvenated they looked like a team that really wanted to play for their coach and I know that's an easy answer but that's that's really what I saw there. Is that the same with you? or?
1: Yeah, I thought they were flying, especially right at the jump. And I don't know if that's key specific or just the fact that they had a new coach. I think, as you said, that does happen. Um, it was a pretty funny game in the fact that you have Barry, who hasn't scored all year. He's the guy that opens the scoring. And then you have Pierre Engvall, who... I mean he didn't he didn't pe- kill penalties in, in game 1 under Babcock. He gets reunited with Keith after one game. They probably missed each other and Keith puts Engvall on the penalty kill and he rewards him right away with a shorthanded goal. So it was just kind of funny to see those connections where really the two players who you'd who you'd kind of associate with a with a coaching change or you'd associate them with Keith uh, they're the ones that score and then Matthews Uh, gets the goal in his hometown so uh, just it was kind of a funny game I just found myself kind of laughing through it that game
0: especially when Barry scored I think when he got that puck and he stepped up and he and he shot the puck the way he did I my jaw dropped and I had this realization of oh my god like the Leafs have Tyson Barry on their team and I think that's the first time I really even thought of that because of just how timid I've seen him play like throughout this year with the Leafs and you see the clips with the Avalanche and we see him so aggressive and jumping up in the play and making offensive plays and then at that time I literally thought like oh my god we have him on our team.
1: I will say with Barry like he's he's certainly played two of his best games under Keith. Uh, I will say I think he deserves some of the blame, probably most of the blame for his slow start. I mean, this is a player who Coming into the year, it looked like he was going to command like a seven million dollar contract uh, per year. And for me, if you're going to be that kind of player, you need to be effective under any head coach, at least a, a above average contributor. And I, I think he was very disappointing to start the year, but I mean, if, it it just feels like his next contract now is just on the way up. It looked like it he kind of hit rock bottom, and now. Him, out of all people seems to be the most relieved uh, about this coaching change.
0: Yeah, and I think it was not last episode, but the episode before. I was when you asked me the question, I think I said I was seeing him at around like four or four four point five. So I, I mean, like now we look at that even two games later, and it looks it looks kind of silly to say that. But I will yeah. say this about Barry. I do blame him, and I, I do understand what you're saying, where any sort of elite player needs to be playing well especially if you're, you're asking for 7 mil a year. But when you look at his, and we talked about this last week, where he was near the top of the team in terms of shot attempts and shots, and near the bottom of the team in expected goals. And then when I look at his goals from the past two games, one is at the circles where he steps up uh, with the puck. The second goal is him kind of seeing an opening, jumping up into the slot and scoring. I, off the top of my head, and I'm sure... We could look this up and and check how dangerous his chances have been this year, but I can't remember really too many chances that were as dangerous as his two goals before that. Would you agree with that?
1: I'll say, so with Barry, again, I made the point that I think he deserves some of the blame. I will say that I think he was put in a position to succeed in terms of line mates. I think Jake Muzzin is maybe the best defenseman he's ever played with. They have complementary skill sets. Muzzin's the best least defender defensively. Uh, Barry needs the help in that department. I think that was... I mean, I, I... And Keith hasn't changed the defense pairs, but I think... like, It's not like Babcock put Barry on the left side playing with Cody CC. He gave him a good partner. He kept him on his, his side. He played him some pretty big minutes. Um, what I did like, and I wouldn't have thought of this... Um, so. In general, I'm not a fan of having two defensemen on the power play. Uh, I would have. I was fine with Riley starting the year on the power play. I kind of wanted a change for the sake of change just because it wasn't working, but I didn't think of putting two defensemen on the power play. Um, I, it's, it's too early to judge, but obviously they got that early power play goal, uh, Barry again. I kind of like it. What do you think of that power play?
0: I think for I know now...
1: It's kind of weird, but I kind of like it.
0: I think for now, like like you said, like change for the cha- sake of change is okay. But I'm still... I guess I'm stubborn in a way where I think that the real danger in the Leafs' power play is when Marner comes back and you have them on their non-one-timer offsides. And I'm still kind of married to that idea that once, that, once Marner comes back, I'm hoping that we see that again. For now... See what? See Marner, it's pretty much the same configuration that they had last year, where Marner and okay. Matthews are on their offside, Something we haven't really seen too much of. I'm still so on, their non, of, on their non on their non one timer side. You want them right on their non one timer sides. Till then, I don't mind them if they want to change something um, and and see the two defensemen on there. I think it does give them a different look, and I think Barry deserves to have a look on that first power play, and it's definitely not going to hurt them as they've. They haven't been very effective this year by what they've been doing, so I, I mean I'm I, I don't love it I don't hate it. Again, like we've only had two games of it, and they hardly even got a power play. I think it was last game, where they only had like one or two power plays. So yeah, uh, I'm I'm kind of in between there.
1: I will say that I think Barry has the best one timer on the team, and if I like I have no idea what they'll do with Marner comes back. I want Marner. Like the same place you want him is not on his one timer side. I don't want to see any more Marner one timers. I want him in the best position to pass. And I I don't I can't see Matthews in the slot. Like I wouldn't mind trying it just to see it, but I I don't imagine he'll be there. Maybe I guess, but my guess is that they're gonna have them both on the outside. I wouldn't mind going on power play two, going Muzzin on the back end, and then putting Barry in the one timer spot because. I kind of like the look of it. I think Barry is the best shooting threat from there on the Leafs. And um, whether it's him or Spetsa, I don't mind having that on the second power play unit. Um, But what I did like about Barry on the power play is, you know, this is the guy that needs confidence right now. And I think obviously with two goals in two games, Keefe spanned away to to get Barry some confidence.
0: Yeah, um, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, like I said, like until Marner comes back, they can experiment and... And even once he comes back, you have time to experiment with that power play too. Uh, really interesting that he took a timeout the other day um, to keep power play one on the ice. I think that was one of the funniest things. Like you said, like the last two games, I found myself just laughing at some of the things that are occurring. Like that, him taking a timeout to keep power play one is almost as if Keith spends his nights on Leafs Twitter just scrolling through all the different complaints, making a list saying, okay, first game, I'll do this one, second game, I'll fix that one. I thought that was hilarious.
1: Right, and I think, let's go through that game quick. So that was the Colorado game. Uh, Freddie let in a bad goal right away. Uh, Shore gets into the lineup mostly, at least I think mostly, because he's he's from Colorado. He's from that area. Um, and it was a really nice pass from Engball on that goal. Uh, then we had Matthews score from Barry. It was a nice pass from Barry, nice shot from Matthews. Uh, then Barry gets that power play goal, as we were mentioning. And then Kapanen gets a breakaway chance on a nice pass from Spezza. So it was 4-1 one after 1. They almost blew it. Um, any thoughts specifically from that game other than the timeout? I liked the timeout. I thought it was kind of clever. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit scared <laughs> at the end. I don't know about you.
0: Um, yeah, I think I, w- I, I was too, and, and I thought when you look at it after, um, kind of the whole game, I think that's probably one of their best games that they played this year. Obviously at the end it did get a little close, and before the empty netter it was kind of scary, but that's one thing, if I had to kind of say a blanket statement to describe that game, or one takeaway, is when Babcock used to talk about the low event hockey and how he thought it was really good, when you have... You can, you can get away with having a bad third period like the Leafs did, where the Avalanche kind of started to, to pour it on and started to score a little bit more. But the Leafs scored four goals in those first two periods. So you can afford to kind of have a bad period in the third and kind of hang on. Um, and, and then they got the two points in the end. But again, like I don't want that to be a, a recurring theme but when you have a team that can score a lot of goals in bunches, I don't mind them taking chances when they do have the momentum.
1: Right. I think, I don't want to excuse the third period either, but I think the, the nice part about being worried about blowing leads means you have a lead in the first place. I think right. I'm happy to see the Leafs have that lead in the first place. Uh, they weren't getting leads under Babcock. I know that... That, that timer was there at the end um, in that, I think it was the Arizona game, where it was like 400 minutes without a lead, which is ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to call the Babcock era all bad. I think that he had some huge positives in previous years, but I think we can call this year uh, a, a big disappointment under Babcock. Um, so... As we kind of compare and contrast the two, I know there's been I mean, some changes uh, that get talked about on the broadcast or on Twitter that I don't necessarily believe, um, but there are certainly some legitimate changes that I've noticed between Keith and Babcock. I want to let you start here. What have you noticed uh, that's kind of been a major difference between the two coaches? Um,
0: I think it's good to focus on the Marlies in terms of kind of assessing Keefe's performance and and the way that his teams play, just because it's only been two games and I wouldn't say that Keefe's kind of stamp has really rubbed off on the team that much in terms of his systems. Um, Before I start and before both of us start, I think it's really important to say that Sheldon Keefe's had a, a number of different looking rosters over the years with the Marlies. He had a team that was very young. That was the year that they won the the Calder Cup, um, I think someone tweeted it saying that it was actually the second youngest team in the AHL, a lot of prospects on that team. He's had rosters that were very forward heavy, um, the team with Neilander, Brown, Hyman, Leipzig, um, etc. He's had teams that were very defense heavy. And then this year, he has a team that's veteran heavy, a lot of guys that have spent time in the NHL. So, and, and with each of those rosters, he's had a certain style that his team has played and it's exactly the way he describes it. It's 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 very puck possession heavy. It's very heavy on... As soon as their team win, loses the puck, they're looking to gain that puck right back and make it difficult for the opposition. And I think that's the biggest difference we're going to see with the Leafs and the biggest difference I've noticed between the Marlies, no matter what roster, what type of roster uh, Sheldon keeps had, and... Um, Mike Babcock's Leafs, I guess, if you could call it that.
1: Yeah, I'll say on Keefe, I will say that I did agree with Burke. I know Burke had a comment saying, you know, Keefe has had some pretty damn good rosters with the Marlies. I think, as you mentioned, some have been young, some have been old, some have been forward heavy, some have been defense heavy, but they've all been pretty strong rosters. So I'm willing to grade on a bit of a curve, but even when you adjust for that, I mean, Keefe is, I believe Keefe is the, has the best winning percentage of all time for any AHL coach with 200 games. I think that's the stat. Wow. Um, that's so even with crazy. even with the curve, he's got great great results. Um, I did notice, as you mentioned, there is a certain tendency from this Leafs team over the last two games to hold onto the puck. Um, they're not dumping it as much. They'll circle back. I think Jason Spezza in particular has been very good at that. Um, he said himself that he, he thinks he, he fits that style of play and uh, he enjoys that. Um, and I noticed it as well. I thought he was outstanding over these last two games. Um, and it's kind of funny to think that he was almost out of the league uh, and now he looks like a... I mean, he's been centering a pretty good third line. Um, so I think that puck possession, as you mentioned, is, is key. They're really passing backwards a lot in order to go forwards. Um, I was actually listening to the Back to Excited podcast, and Arvin had said, I mean, it reminds him of soccer, where you, you move mm-hmm. the you move the ball backwards in order to go forwards. Um, I don't know if you've played soccer before. I've, have you heard of it? <laughs>
0: uh, I have.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I only played till I was five. I know you, you probably played at a, a few more years at least. I think you, you still play, but... Uh, that's what it reminds me of is is the soccer. So, yeah, it is. We did see that with the Marlies too, quite a bit.
0: Yeah, it's funny because actually Kyle Dubis, um, he retweets and and now it sounds like I'm always on his Twitter and maybe I am, but he always is retweeting and liking a lot of things from Pep Guardiola, who's uh, Manchester City's coach, and that's a that's a guy that's kind of huge on possession and and players being close to each other and and not only to make short passes because of the easiest pass and to keep possession, but also staying close to each other is important when you lose the ball. You now have a lot of pressure that can now collapse onto the ball or the puck, something the Marlies have been doing for years. That's where I think the Leafs are going to make a big jump. Um, what
1: would, uh, would you say his name was? The Pep Guardiola. Soccer coach? Think he'd be a good, uh, a good fit for the Marlies head coaching vacancy?
0: I think he's got to work his way up. We'll start him on the Growlers. Okay. And and then move them up and 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 we'll see Hollowell just become a, a star NHLer one day if if Pep's the coach I think.
1: Yeah, I think I think the Growlers could probably afford him. I don't know what man is it Man City. I don't know what they're paying them, but
0: not that I doubt I, it's that much. They're only one of the richest teams in the world, so.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, well, if it happens, we'll we'll take credit for that idea.
0: Yeah, it'll come from the Everything Leaves podcast.
1: <laughs> Even on the Greyhounds though, like they. They like to cycle a puck back, they like to protect mm-hmm. it, and I did notice a difference. I think the other thing I noticed was the defense were so aggressive. I think it's, I, I like it, I think it's mostly a good thing. I think they've, they haven't they have got caught too much yet, they probably will a little bit more in the future. Um, I tweeted out a couple of videos of Justin Hall the other night where he gets caught and he has the speed to catch up, and... I don't know if he can do that against you know the McDavid's of the world, but they can, he could probably do it against most NHL forwards. Um, something that I don't know if they could have done with, say, Roman Polak or, or Ron Hainsey. Uh, for me, it's just a completely different team, and it starts on the defense.
0: Yeah, and um, another guy who is very aggressive, and a lot of people talk about it, and for a good reason, is Travis Dermott, a guy that... Likes to be aggressive in the neutral zone, and he can do that because of his skating ability and his his ability to also recover. I think he does it better than Hall, um, and and I guess that's why we see him so successful. So um, I think we're gonna see the defense become be more and more aggressive. I think especially as next year comes and we see Sandine and Lilligren come up the come up the ranks, and and I think we're gonna see a very mobile defense going forward with the Toronto Maple Leafs and it's gonna be a lot more fluid hockey than what we're used to
1: yeah and especially when they re-sign Cody CC then they'll uh, they'll really be going for it <laughs>
0: you you've, you've opened a can of worms here so I got a question for you there's been two okay. games now <laughs> two games now with Sheldon Keith and CC is still one of the I don't know if I don't want to say he is the leader because I don't have that offhand but he's one of the top Guys, in terms of time on the ice, even with Sheldon Keefe. I think that's something a lot of people didn't expect, including myself. Mm-hmm. What is your theory behind that?
1: Um, a few things. So one, to start, he hasn't switched the D pairs. Uh, I don't mind that. He's still kind of getting his, his feet under him. He's still getting to know the players a little bit. I don't mind that. I think the first game, it was... They didn't have a power play, so they only they only killed penalties. CC's gonna play a little bit more as a result, and I think in the second game, they had that lead. They're kind of playing more defensive hockey, trying to protect the lead. Um, so maybe that partially explains it. I will say that CC, he's been playing a ton of minutes this year to the point where I think they could move him if they wanted to. I think like. The one thing I'll I'll say about Babcock is the fact that CC played him on the first pairing all the way till the end. I think that raises his value. I think that has some some value in in the NHL community. I think um, that'll kind of raise his stock. I know he hasn't been playing well, but I think I mean a right-shot defenseman with some size that plays big minutes. I think they could move him if they wanted to. Now, the, I think the tricky part is is I still don't know what I want these pairings to be. I think, ideally, um, I, I I still like Riley Muzzin. I've always liked that pairing, but they have three right shooting defensemen, three left shooting defensemen. Maybe they go Riley Barry. Is that what you you do? Like, I just don't know what I what I would change.
0: Um, I I really liked. I'm not trying to dodge your question here, but I really liked Muzzin Hall. Um, they've been pretty successful through the first two games that they played. Uh, the last two games at Sheldon Keefe, I know a lot of people will probably point to their zone starts. And I wouldn't say that they've had tough zone starts by any stretch of the imagination. I think I checked it after last game or the game before, and they only had three or four defensive zone starts. So to call them a shutdown pairing or to to expect them to all of a sudden become a really good shutdown pairing at this point is probably a little premature. But they've been good together. Um, And I think it's their best option right now. And I'd like to see them kind of get that that usage going forward.
1: Yeah, I think the counterpoint, and I guess you kind of touched on this at the end there, is like it might not be a perfect shutdown pairing, but like currently they're running Riley cece out there. So I also like the Muzzin Hall pairing. Um, I just think they both have size. They both move pretty well. They both move the puck pretty well. They kind of complement each other well. Uh, it's a pretty complete pairing. I don't know if I'm completely sold on Hall as a top four shutdown guy, but the other right shooting defensemen are CC and Barry. So uh, it's kind of, you take what you can get. Uh, but if you do go Muzzin-Hall, what do you think of the other, like what do you do with the other four? Do you go Riley, Barry, Dermot CC, or do you go Riley, CC? I guess it would be Dermot Barry. That's that's what they're doing now. So, what would you change with these pairings, if anything?
0: I think if you go Muzzin Hall and you keep CC, and let's say he doesn't get traded, I I don't even mind having Riley Hall. Uh, Riley CC. Sorry, my problem with Riley CC is never really. I mean, neither of them are very good at defending the line. They're not very good defensively in general, either of them. But I don't mind seeing Dermot Barry on that third sheltered pairing if they get a lot of offensive zone starts and Dermott's so good at, at transitioning the puck into the offensive zone and Barry is so good in the offensive zone so if they're playing third and fourth lines I don't mind them taking chances and being aggressive because obviously if you're going to make mistakes do it against you know the the inferior opposition um so and then Riley and CeCe if they're not getting the top competition and they're getting second and third lines I really don't mind them out there and just because of how effective i think dermid barry will be against um third and fourth lines and and how good i think muzzin and hall could be against top lines i can live with riley cc together
1: okay i i i'd say my stance on it now is i wouldn't mind seeing riley barry but i'm also a very scared of that line defensively so what would be their um, usage would you say if you put them together well, they got to play big minutes, so I think they're going to end up in the defensive zone at least a little bit, but you would try to give them as many offensive zone starts as possible, but if you're just rolling three pairings, it's kind of hard to to do that. So um, just going right. off, just to kind of recap the, the changes I've noticed so far. So one being the D are very aggressive, two being puck possession, um, their ability to kind of turn around, pass it backwards, keep control of the puck. Um, the other thing that... Well, I guess one more that's kind of obvious is the power play, um, just because it is different, and different is better in this case, just because the power play was so bad. But the other thing I wanted to get to is the the new line. So the, the defense haven't changed, in, in, uh, as we just said, but the forwards have. So right off the bat, Keith has helped out a little bit by getting Kerfoot back. Kerfoot's a good player. He adds a little bit of scoring depth. That helps the line lines on its own. But he goes with Makaev over Kapanen on the Tavares line, and he he creates a third line of Kerfoot, Spezza, Kapanen. Um, one, on the fourth line, he had a little bit more offense, taking out Nick Shore. I didn't really love the, the Gauthier-Shore duo, um, though he did go back to it against Colorado. So any early thoughts on these new lines? I was a little bit surprised he went to Kerfoot at left wing. I didn't end up minding it, but I'm curious to see your thoughts on really any of those those three lines.
0: Uh I liked it. I think Kapanen's best hockey that he's played this year has been when he's played with Kerfoot on that third line. Um as soon as he was moved last time, we saw him kind of come alive and he's there's kind of more open ice and more chances for him to to skate up and and obviously hindsight, there's some hindsight bias here as he scored a breakaway goal the other day, but That is truly where you want Kapanen. You want him to be in transition like that using his foot speed. And so I didn't really mind that move. Another thing that I've criticized in the past with Kapanen is he's not that good on the cycle, and especially in tight spaces, which is exactly where Tavares and Hyman love to be. They love to be kind of in those gritty areas, cycling the puck, they're, they're kind of workers that way, and Mikhaev's a lot better in that situation. So I really like the move. Hyman on on the right wing was definitely... At first, I was like, that's different, and I was open to seeing it, but that caught me off guard completely. Um, and I thought he was pretty... I thought Hyman was great on the right wing, and, and you showed some clips yesterday of him in transition, which was good.
1: But yeah, I was just going to mention I that. I like the moves. Yeah. So I'll say this. I'll say we spoke last podcast about the the matchups that Babcock was using. So I said at the time, you have this Matthews line, the matthews Nealander duo, that is consistently beating other second lines. So that's where you're winning. But then you look at the other three lines right now, and you have Tavares out. He doesn't have Marner, and he's not... Like, without Marner, it's tough to expect him to outplay other top lines. So you're not really winning that matchup most nights. And then you had this Patan makayev line, which is really just the average third line at best on paper. It seems so you're not winning that matchup most nights. And then you had this fourth line, which was basically only defensive zone starts, um, and you're not going to win a matchup most nights when you have Gouche playing with Shore. Like you're just not. Um, I don't. I didn't mind how Babcock used the players. I just didn't think they were the right players to be in the lineup in the first place. I don't mind one of them. I don't like both of them together. Um, so I will say that Keefe's new lines, going Mikhaev on that Tavares line, um, one, I thought moving Hyman to right wing helped him in terms of entries. Uh, I, I, he's got speed. He's, he's pretty strong to knock off the puck. Um, and then I think that third line he made with Kerfoot, Spetsa, and Kapanen, I thought that was a line where he could win that matchup, where that third line can outplay other third lines. Um, so I, even though Kapanen gets a little bit less minutes going down in the lineup, I did like that it gives the Leafs another matchup that they can win on most nights.
0: Yeah, and I think now when you look at line by line, I think it's almost a wash in terms of saying which line is going to beat the other team because in our two-game sample, it's virtually been almost every line, in terms of you can look at um, you can look at shot attempt differential. You could look at expected goal differential, and almost every line is over fifty percent in terms of expected goal differential. For example, um, I'm just looking at it now, like in the Coyotes game, only four guys are under fifty percent, and that is Riley CeCe, Engval Gauthier. So. And then when it comes to the other game, which was the, which one was that? The Avs game uh, this week, the Leafs have one, two, three, four, five, five guys under. Engvall, Kappen, and Kerfoot, CC Riley. So, I mean, it's almost tough to say, like now, when you look at those four lines, and they don't even have Marner yet, it's almost like just systemically, they're playing better hockey as a team. And it's not only the, the the Matthews line that's dominating the other lines; it's pretty much the whole team, which is awesome to see.
1: Yeah, I think the the Tavares line is playing heavy. I think I liked Caput in there; I thought he played well. But that with Hyman, Makhayev, and Tavares, just such a heavy line, and such a line, such a hard line to knock off the cycle. So I feel like they can waste a lot of time just by playing that cycle game against top competition. Um, I already mentioned the third line, but I also like the fourth line more. I think Batanz played well. And I think Pierre engval has been awesome. So there's more offense on that line, and it feels like they can actually score now, and at least they have a chance of winning that matchup as well. Um, what have you thought of Engvall specifically? Because I know he's had he's got two points so far. Uh, do you think he's here to stay?
0: It's tough to say whether he's here to stay. I think his cap hits a little bit higher. So once Marner comes back, it will be a little bit difficult to to keep him. And because they're so tight, they, they might need to move someone. But so I think that's really the biggest knock on him right now is his cap hit. If, if you know, let's say they randomly had a lot of salary cap, I think he should be in the lineup. He's earned it. Most importantly, he can penalty kill. And he's done a lot of penalty killing under Keith with, with the Marlies. And clearly keep trust him even at the NHL level and he's he's got that sneaky stride where it doesn't really look like he's going that fast but he's just randomly faster than the player that's skating beside him because his his strides are so smooth and so long um, that I think he could be a decent transition player in the NHL and and we saw it with that goal I mean he he was flying out there so he has the skill set to be effective on the Leafs and when we saw that Shore goal, I mean, that was pretty much all Pierre Engvall. And that was a great play. That's the spin-around shot that was right on the, the tape of Nick Shore. So he ha- he adds a lot of value to that fourth line. And that fourth line needed help in transition. And they needed help in the offensive zone. Two things that Engvall have really provided for them.
1: Right. And I think what I like about Engvall as well is that he can play center. He hasn't done it yet at the NHL level. But I think he's a better penalty killer than Goche. Largely because he's got more speed, um, but he's that player similar to Goche. If you look at Goche's good points, is that I mean he's very tall, he covers a ton of the ice, and he's defensively responsible. And I think Engval shares those same those same values or those same strengths, where he can cover a ton of the ice and he can kind of tilt play uh, in the in his team's favor. So the other thing about Engval that I prefer to someone like Goche is. He's got a little bit of, of breakaway speed, and he also has a pretty good shot. So even if he's on a fourth line, even if he doesn't really have high-end playmakers, he can kind of score out of nowhere because he's got such a good wrist shot.
0: Yeah, and and he's... Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's going to provide that fourth line with a lot of a lot of value, and I think more than Gauthier. Um, you bring up a good point about him being able to play center. I hope that he stays up in the lineup, but I'm also a big fan of Patan, and I want him to stay up as well. So we'll see what happens when Marner comes back, but the good news is is that we're seeing offense from that fourth line. And I think now like, kind of all bets are off in terms of predicting what's going to happen when Marner comes back, and I think probably the easy answer is salary cap related where they're going to have the cheapest guys that are on the team, like Timashov Shore, Gauthier, and... Uh, who's the last one there that I'm missing? Um, Timoshev? Did you say Timishov? Yeah, I said Timoshev, Gauthier, Shore, and... Oh, Spetsa. I guess, Trev- was there before. Yeah, so, Trevor Moore as well. Oh, yeah, and they have Trevor Moore coming back. So I think it's so tough to predict now with Keith there. I think one of the biggest guys that has... We were talking about people who benefit from Keith coming up. I think that Timishov all of a sudden went from a guy that if you ask me maybe a year ago or two years ago, I would say he would never fit on a Babcock team. And now all of a sudden I'm saying, I think Babcock leaving might've negatively impacted him.
1: Right. He hasn't played yet. Um, obviously Keith knows him well, and it's going to be interesting with Keith now is who comes up, not just this year, but next year, like out of camp. He knows Jeremy Bracco. He knows Adam Brooks. He knows Mason Marchment. Um, he obviously knows Engval and, and Timashov who are on the roster now, and then obviously Sandin and Lilligren. He's seen those guys; he knows them better than anyone. So, uh, if someone like Bracco doesn't make the team next year, I think it it could speak volumes. And kind of conversely, like let's say, let's say Brooks has a great rest of the season with the Marlies, and. He doesn't have the best preseason. He's just slightly above average. He's not, he's not outstanding. Babcock, he might not put him on his team because he doesn't really know him. Whereas, Keefe has a little bit better understanding of the AHL talents, and I think that's not just a key specific thing, but it's just anytime you hire your AHL coach, he's going to have that understanding of some players that most NHL coaches would not.
0: Yeah, and and even Keith will have a better understanding of the type of player that he could be at the NHL level and how he can use them, um, where I guess, yeah, Babcock might not have had that same understanding. Um, Who would you say, just I'm putting you on the spot here, and this is obviously a really difficult question to, to answer at this point, but who could you see come up that wouldn't surprise you next season? Uh, I
1: think both Sandine and Lilligren. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me or most people at this point. They're playing so well. Um. I have like Adam Brooks is slowly crime climbing up my my prospects ranking here. I think Man, I had him but... a, pretty low. I had him pretty low coming into the year. I know Keith's high on him, and Scott Wheeler had an article about that, um, like the Brooks Keith relationship. Um, so I. Even aside from that, like, not considering that, I do think Brooks has taken a step forward this year. Uh, He hasn't stopped getting better. I don't know if there's going to be a fit there. Uh, He's a smaller player. He'd be in a fourth-line role. I don't know if it's really perfect. Uh, I kind of like Engvall in that role, the fourth-line center role. Um, But I, I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked if Jeremy Bracco came up. But, again, they don't really need a right winger. So that's kind of a tricky fit, but I think it at least improves his chances. I don't think he was going to be a fit on a Babcock team. Um, And then one player I think people are forgetting about is Mason Marchment. Uh, He's been hurt this year, but uh, he's a guy who's a beast in puck battles. He goes to the net, he scores garbage goals. I wouldn't mind having a little bit of sandpaper on the team, and he's a guy that can draw some penalties. Um, I I would like to see the least power play a little bit more. I feel like I never get to, to see it. It's like a a long-distance relationship. You never get to see the person.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's unfortunate that, I don't know who who wrote about it last year, where there's a direct correlation to the amount of power plays you you get versus the amount of penalties you take. So, I mean, if Marchant wants to go out there and just kind of cause trouble and and (laughs) cause more penalties, and maybe that means the Leafs get more power plays. But uh, I'll touch upon something before that. I would say all bets are off in terms of the future in terms of how Sheldon Keefe uses that fourth line. Like, I think it was two years ago or the year before, but where Keefe's fourth line was Brooks, Moore, and Marchman. I think that was the year they won. You could probably correct me on that.
1: Yep, that's that was their line.
0: So, Keefe has had no problems in the past of putting four lines out there that he can just roll, that, you know, he can get offense from and good defense. So... I would say that Gauthier, with with the number of centers that they have, like like Engvall could be the center next year, Brooks, you know, anyone that they really sign. But I think that that fourth line, the days of that fourth line being used as like defensive zone starts or any sort of like bigger players, for example, that can provide toughness. I think that those kind of all bets are off with that because and and those days are numbered. Sorry, sorry, maybe. I, think I mean, that I might we, we could see like just a fourth line that could provide offense. Uh,
1: maybe we could, but we've also seen he's played Goche both games, who's kind of the the opposite of that, and he played him with the Marley. So this is something I wanted to to touch on here is one another thing I noticed with the Marley specifically, and they kind of showed it on the broadcast. So I might be a little bit influenced by that, but Keefe's forwards tend to play pretty deep in the defensive zone, so. They're, they're down low. It's almost like a collapse-the-net type of style where they basically don't care if the other team's defensemen get the puck. Uh, they'll give that up, but they're going to be very low towards the net, it's almost collapsing. And then it does kind of help make a shorter breakout pass when they do get the puck. Um, and we know the we know the breakout's a little bit different where they like to circle back, they like to protect the puck a little bit more. Uh, but I will say... One thing I've noticed about, like when the Marlies won the Calder Cup, their strength in their transition game was on the wing. It wasn't at center. So their centers at the time, they had Mira Altonen, they had Chris Mueller, they had Frederick Gauthier, and they had a young Adam Brooks. So of the four centers, I would say Altenin was probably an above-average skater for that level, whereas Mueller, Gauthier, and, and this is Brooks a couple of years back now, They weren't very good skaters, so they weren't all that strong in transition up the middle. And I found it interesting that in his first game, he decides to put Spezza at center over Kerfoot. Uh, Kerfoot's been good defensively this year. He's looked great at center, um, yet he ends up on the wing. And it looked to me to be pretty similar to that Calder Cup team where, I mean, the Leafs had Matthews at center. He can skate, but Tavares, Spezza, goche none of those three are like elite centers. Uh, in terms of skating obviously Tavares is an elite center just not in terms of skating so it looked like they were kind of driving their transition game more on the wing and obviously Kerfoot is is pretty good in transition himself so putting him at left wing was was kind of a nice move but that is one thing I noticed Uh, I don't know if you want to comment on that it's I might have just said everything about the topic there but
0: no um, yeah I mean I agree I think we're plugging Scott Wheeler a lot uh, this episode, but he has a really good article. I think it was from last year, comparing the Marlies and the Leafs. And he has a lot of clips on the Marlies breakout. And one and one thing, it's kind of, you know, um, talks about what you just said here, where the transition does come a lot from the wings. And, and we see the Marlies use the, the boards a lot and they kind of those little chips off the boards that go past the the incoming forward and then the winger picks up the puck and now he's able, he has a lot of open ice to kind of run through the neutral zone and and really back up the the other team's defense. So, I think it really worked with the Marlies and I think with the amount of good transition wingers that the Leafs have, it could work with the Leafs too. There was actually a really good example of it from last game where Riley has the puck. Uh, I tweeted it actually where Riley has the puck, it looks like he's kind of about to make a stretch pass and he doesn't make it, goes towards the boards, little chip off the boards to, uh, I think it was Neilander, who's waiting at the, the blue line, passes the puck to Janssen, who's flashing through the middle and, and the Leafs were off to the races. So again, it's it's those transition plays that kind of start around the boards that the wingers are really influenced in. And, and that's something I want to see the Leafs, the Leafs do more.
1: Yeah, another thing I wanted to – I'm going to have to check out that article. I think, like, with some systems articles, I don't fully buy them, but Wheeler's such a good writer that, I mean, he's certainly one of the guys that I will all uh, listen to and, and read there. Um, another person. Another thing I wanted to mention is – and they mentioned this on the Back to the Excited podcast. Um, so the number of sh- – like, what's interesting right now it about the of offense – we got lots of plugs on this podcast
0: yeah (laughs) um
1: one thing i one thing i guess they noticed um and i'm kind of echoing this here is that against arizona i think we can all agree they had an incredible offense like they were just generating a ton of chances um that's backed up not only by the eye test but by like if you look at at their kind of shot threat for that game um Using some of the numbers out there, it also looks good in terms of something like expected goals. Like they had a great offense, um, but what's what's kind of interesting is they're still taking at least in that game quite a lot of point shots. Um, and they're if you look at the overall shots, um, like the overall offense was good because not only were they getting point shots, but they were also getting high danger chances. They were kind of getting both. Um, so what I'm curious about is. Like the number of shots, shot attempts they got in that game is just not sustainable. Like you're not going to get that um, game after game. I'm interested to see what the ratio is between high danger chances and those low danger point shots, um, because it's probably they're probably not going to get that many chances every game, even with Keefe. Um, it just doesn't happen. I'm sure they'll be high, but it, they just they won't get that many chances at least. So I'm interested to see if. What drops? Does, does, the, does the ratio stay the same or do they start taking a few less point shots uh, as we get go on here?
0: Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to the point shots, I think they're kind of public enemy number one right now. But in moderation, they're not bad. I mean, I felt like a lot of the low danger shots that the Leafs were taking under Babcock this year, especially from the Tavares line, they're kind of jumping out at me a lot of the shots they take, especially when entering the zone, are just kind of to gain the zone. Not so much like they think they're going to score, but, but even the point shots, a lot of them are, are just looking for a tip or just looking to get the puck down low. The right. pre-Keefe Leafs this year had a lot of trouble getting the puck down low and keeping the puck down low and keeping it around the slot and getting it to the slot where the low danger chances weren't, were just kind of a way to get it around that area. So right. when it's happening that much, it's it's a problem. But if the key, if, I guess we'll call them the Keith Leafs, I don't think they're going to be doing it as much as the Leafs were before. So yeah, I'm also curious to see how that changes. But I, I think so the one- in general, they're going to have more success getting high danger chances. So we're, as a result, we're just going to see those point shots get lower because... They won't have to rely on it that much.
1: So the one thing I want to kind of clarify here is, and you know this, but I still want to clarify this, is Babcock did not get stronger offensive results this year. But if you look at previous years, his team's got a ton of high danger chances. I don't know what happened this year, um, but I just, just wanted to clarify that. But another point I wanted to make is in terms of those low danger shots two players that were kind of getting on my nerves in that regard one being Makayev where he just seems to be taking like weak wrist shots from like even if there's no one with you like try to try to bring the puck behind the net protect it wait for some teammates to get there i don't know why he's taking these far wrist shots that's one player that i've kind of noticed maybe it's maybe it's just in my head but that's one thing i've noticed and then another player is Jake Muzzin. I think when we think of shots from the point, we're thinking of, of like Tyson Berry or Morgan Riley. But uh, for me, at times it feels like Muzzin is back on the old LA Kings where they're just almost gaming Corsi because they just put everything on the net. So those are two guys I like to see shoot a little bit less. And again, I'm going to be curious to see if the amount of point shots continue. Um, I will say that I think the D have been more aggressive. They're stepping up. And I think guys like Barry are closer to the net when they shoot now, it seems. Again, a two-game sample, not much to go off there. But um, I think, as we mentioned earlier, like Barry's the one guy that I think has been night and day.
0: Yeah, and when it comes to Makayev, I'm really surprised that he's taking so many shots. When I watched him in the summer, he looked like a guy that, took on defenders quite often with the puck and never really settled for shots. So seeing him shoot like so much from the perimeter this year is kind of surprising and who knows, maybe it changes, maybe it doesn't. Um, But I guess we'll just have to see with that. I mean, clearly the systems are going to change and again, not blaming this on Babcock, but it's tough to really say what is just kind of individual tendencies and what's, maybe a systemic thing that was occurring with the Leafs.
1: So I want to get into, now that we've talked about Keefe and the changes, I want to talk at least a little bit about Babcock, Um, almost like some final thoughts on Babcock here, I think. Um, This was the week that he got fired, obviously. Um, I think there are plenty of criticisms going around right now uh, as I mentioned earlier, there was also some some good things about Babcock. I mean, he I thought he he did great with players like Hyman. He did great with players like Nazem Kadri. Really expanded their careers, um, in their roles. Um, he also had some pretty damn good on ice results um, prior to this season in terms of offense and in terms of in terms of power play success. Like the Leafs' power play was phenomenal for the most part under Babcock. Um, is there anything like when you think of the Babcock era, and I know there's obviously a lot of a lot going around right now in terms of that Babcock Marner story, but when you think when you look back at Babcock, what will you remember as kind of the the things you didn't like or some of the criticisms of Babcock? Um like were you happy that they made this move or were you a little bit did you think it was kind of overblown?
0: Uh, like in terms of him getting hired in the first place, or when they replaced him?
1: When they replaced him.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm happy. It's. I think that when we look back at when Dubis got hired, I think that the Leafs probably should have, would have really benefited hiring him one year before they did, uh, before Lou was able to to sign Zaitsev and Hainsey. and sorry, not Hainsey. It was the Zaitsev. Um, it was that summer where he, he signed Connor Brown and the Long Zaitsev contract and the Marlow contract. I think so. You're a saying they would have.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. Sorry. In a similar way, I think that we're going to look back at but when Babcock got fired, and and we're going to say that the Leafs would have really benefited if they fired him in the summer. Obviously, this hindsight bias, and this year didn't go well, and for a number of reasons, not just Mike Babcock, but I mean in if there's a positive to to take from them firing him now, it's that now we like Sheldon, I mean, uh, Kyle Dubis and Sheldon Keefe, it's their team. Now there's not going to be many people that say that Babcock shouldn't have been fired, especially with all the reports that are coming out and whatnot. And I'm not really going to comment on those, but I think that pretty much everything about Babcock has already been said. He, I think it was good that he got hired in the first place. I mean he's brought this team from a team from the basement to a contender. And that was necessary for this team and, and I think now the move to Sheldon Keefe is necessary.
1: Yeah, I will say with Babcock in like just to defend Dubis a bit, um, in terms of the timing of this, I will say that like last last season, he chose Sparks over McElhaney, and we heard about it forever. I thought it was the smart move, process wise. The result did not end up well. I think we can all agree on that. But at the time, like, I'll take the young goaltender uh, and just see what he has. Um, because I think we kind of knew, like, McElhaney had just come off the best season of his career at his age. Um, I was willing to, like, I think the better bet was on the younger player. Um, And if Sparks, if they had traded Sparks and Sparks had done great elsewhere, then we really would have heard a lot of criticism. So I thought it was a smart move process-wise, but again, Dubas took a lot of heat after that, uh, even though I thought it was the right move process-wise. And just to compare that to the coach, like if Dubas would have fired Babcock after the playoffs, there would have been a lot of criticism if... They had got off to the start. Like if if Keith takes over and they got off to this, if they if Keith takes over and they get off to this start, Dubis's job's all of a sudden in jeopardy. So I think now we're at the point where, I mean, it was almost anonymous, like not anonymous, unanimous, where like you had people like Craig Button, you had TSN saying you know we think he's going to be gone. Uh, it wasn't just Leafs Twitter that that wanted Babcock out. I think it was. Pretty much everyone who agreed, and you can kind of like, there's not. It's tough to criticize criticize Dubis for firing Babcock when his team's winning less than forty percent of their games.
0: Yeah, and when they're getting, you know, borderline dominated every game either too. So, especially that Pittsburgh that, loss. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean the writing's on the wall at that point, and I think, I think in, when you look at it that way it was definitely a good time for them to say, to kind of silence those critics.
1: The one, so a few criticisms I'll say, um, and I'll try to be quick here. One is that it took him a long time to figure out who his best players were. So um, over-reliance on, on guys like Komarov and guys like Marlow. Um, Komarov stuck with the Kadri line, even though he was like a bottom 10, five-on-five scorer. Uh, and then we saw... Marlowe never touched the fourth line, even though he was pretty ineffective last year. Um, In kind of contrast, it took him a long time to kind of warm up to Janssen and and Kapanen. Um, And I thought it it, it just, it hurt the team um, just because of his over-reliance on veterans a bit. Uh, Another thing I'll say is the thing that he's scratching players to no end, like uh, whether it was Josh Levo couldn't play over Matt Martin, whether it was, Justin Hall couldn't play over Igor Ozoganov. Like, there was no reason those guys couldn't swap in uh, on the second half of back-to-back. And it almost felt like he was, like, ruining their careers. And I think if you're, like, a friend of one of those players, it must be pretty frustrating seeing your friend just kind of sit in the press box no matter what he does. Um, and again, just, it kind of speaks to his ability to kind of, he wasn't great at identifying who his best players were. Um, I think I would take, I would take Levo over, over Martin. I'd take Hall over Ozgianov. So I think those decisions kind of, I mean, they weren't fireable offenses, like scratching Josh Levo isn't a fireable offense, but it, they did start to add up. And then the last thing I'll say is he never found a shutdown pairing. Um, we, we could have tried different things. Uh, we could have tried Riley with Muzzin more. We could have tried Riley with Gardner, Riley with Dermott, um, Gardner with Dermot. There was tons of combinations, but we still had Riley Haynesy for most of the year, even though everyone knew that wasn't gonna work as a shutdown pair. So anything to add on to those?
0: Uh honestly, no. I, I I uh I think you covered it really good there. I'm I'm kind of I I feel like we've been talking about Babcock for so long, like it's been almost a year and a half where he's been under the fire, and I I personally am just ready to move on. I'm I think that I think what's you know I think it's done now and and Sheldon keeps time and it's it's Dubas time to see what they're what what they can do and when it's time to criticize them you know we'll be there so uh, but I wanted to bring up um, one trade proposal I think it's kind of funny where last week we're talking like kind of all of Leafs Twitter is talking about people are talking about you know such a good move from Dubas for protecting that top 10 pick and Oh my God! Like the Leafs are gonna miss the playoffs next year. What uh, this year? What's our team gonna look like next year? And now we've won two games. They look really good. And now we're talking about Timothy Lilligren being traded in a package for Alex Petrangelo. So I know you've seen those tweets uh, around Twitter uh, this past week, and I wanted to get your take on it. Um, I would say they're just not, like.
1: In isolation, I don't mind it. Like I think Petrangelo is an outstanding player. I think everyone knows that. I think he's just what the Leafs need, being a, a top-pairing shutdown guy. Uh, he's a Team Ca- Canada-caliber defenseman. But the Leafs aren't really in a position to make that move, at least in my opinion. Even if they, they go on a bit of a roll here, they're not... They're not a first place team right now. They're not a sure bet for the playoffs by any means. Uh, the other thing I'll say, like it would just be a little bit risky where you could you could still miss the playoffs even if you did acquire Petrangelo. Um, the other thing I'll say is the Leafs already have so many rentals on the roster like Jake Muzzins, Cody Ceci, uh Tyson Barry. They're all unrestricted free agents after this year. I think Justin Hall is as well. And then, so that's four of your six defensemen. Dermot's an RFA, like, it, and you're probably not going to have the cap space to re-sign Petrangelo. So it's, it probably would be a pure rental. Um, so I just, I don't mind, though, like, I don't think Lilligren is a crazy ask for the Blues. I just don't think the Leafs are really in a position to make that move.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much where I stand as well. I think that they need some stability going forward, especially at that right D. Uh, position right now if right now they have signed for next year only Morgan Riley on their D so you're almost if you trade Timothy Lilligren you have no guys on the right side that are signed to next year and I feel like a lot of people have forgotten how difficult it is to trade for or even draft a good right-handed defenseman and how well not so much. I mean drafting is is its own animal, but to trade for or even acquire as a free agent, how difficult that's been for the Leafs the last past few years and I don't see it getting any easier. So they just traded Nazem Kadri who's been a really good leaf for them for years for Tyson one, pretty much one year of Tyson Barry. So I don't see why you would trade Timothy Lilligren. I can't even remember the last time the Leafs have had a right-handed defenseman prospect as good as Timothy Lilligren. So, and I mean, to play devil's advocate, I know that some people are saying that, um, you know, the the, the the core of this team is inside forever and Frederick Anderson's contract is coming up soon. But like you said, they're not in a playoff position right now. Even if they sign um I think his cap hit is what? Is it six? Uh, it sounds year?
1: about sounds about right.
0: Yeah, I'd say it's probably around there. So you'd have like,
1: to include like CC or something to get that done.
0: Exactly, and that in itself is a bit of a dream. So I don't know. I don't know if it's really even effective, and whether something like that could even happen. So I I, I thought it was kind of odd, like how how many people were kind of behind that idea all of a sudden.
1: I was in for Petrangelo last year, where they would have had him for a year and a half, and the Blues were in last place, and then we kind of know what happened from there. The Blues just decided to, to win the cup for themselves, so that was kind of selfish. Uh, I think they, they probably you know, should have traded him to Toronto and, and given the Leafs a better chance to win, but they took the selfish route and they and they chose to win it for themselves.
0: Yeah, and I don't think people know that the Leafs made that same decision, like, this week. So, let's, you know, they'll be fine either way. They made that decision this week, so they're probably going to win this year.
1: Oh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think it was the same day that they switched coaches. It was either the same day or the same week. Like, it was very close.
0: I think it is the same day. I think I saw something like that. So, I mean, it's fate at this point, so...
1: Yeah, the other trade idea I wanted to swing by you was, I mean, it's it's not the size of, that Petr, of a Petrangelo deal, but it's something the Leafs could use. So today, they called up Michael Hutchison, who's been good with the Marlies. He's, he's kind of bounced back and, and gotten some playing time down there. Uh, they brought they put Cascasuo back to the Marlies. Um, but the Arizona Coyotes have three goalies on their roster right now. So they have Darcy Kemper, who's... One of the best goalies in hockey this year. They have Antti Ranta, who is probably their starter going forward. He's a he's a v- very good goalie in his own right, or at least a, an average starter. Uh, and then they have Eric Comrie. So they claimed, I believe they claimed Comrie off waivers from the Jets at the start of the year. Um, they're kind of Josh Levoing him, where he hasn't played a game in the NHL. Uh, he's behind two guys in the depth chart, and they put him down for like a four-game AHL conditioning stint. Um, so they can't send him down without waivers. Uh, I'm wondering if the Leafs could make a trade for Comrie, um, maybe someone like Timoshev, uh someone like Nick Shore, um, and maybe like a pick, or maybe you send a, another goalie the other way. Um, my, my thought process here is, is Comrie makes 700000 this year and next. So it's not just this year, but if it works out, you have him for next year. Um, and then it just adds some some goalie depth to the organization. I think, I don't know if Comrie would be a great backup, but it's someone who I'd be worth giving a shot. And I think with someone like Timoshev, it seems like when Marner comes back, someone's going to hit waivers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm no goaltending expert by any stretch of the imagination, but and but i just can't really justify to myself trading a guy like timoshov and i know that i mean if you if you're going to lose him anyway let's say but through waivers but so many guys have passed through waivers this year that i don't see why dmitri timoshov would get claimed at this point
1: um, um it is a low cap hit like it and he's young so i could yeah. see him getting claimed. I don't I don't think it's a huge risk I just think it's a deal where like the Leafs are going to risk losing some forwards on waivers the Coyotes would have to risk losing Comrie on waivers I mean something has to give there in Arizona like they're not just gonna let them they can't just let them rot the whole year like unless there's an injury in the next couple weeks like how long can you expect to, to to have a third goalie in the press box every night like it's just not fair to Comrie I just think it's a deal where you know the coyotes get a cheap forward on wave like that they like they don't have to win the waiver priority they can just get a timashov um as kind of an extra forward and then the leaves can get a little bit extra goalie depth and someone where if it works out then you have them for next year at at a 700,000 cap hit
0: yeah i think in in theory that works i don't know i'm i'm in a weird spot where i think i wouldn't want to trade timashov for that because i think that um He's quite good, even though I mean he's already twenty three, but that is also young enough where we might have something in him. But I also don't think he's good enough where he would get claimed. Um, so I'm kind of in a weird spot like that. But again, I don't I don't feel too strongly about this one. Like to me, backup goaltending, I I don't mind them continuing rot to to ride Kaskasuo and Hutchison. And and like I said before, I'm not I'm not an expert on goalies, so and I'm actually unsure of how much better Eric Comrie would be in comparison to those two, especially in that backup role in such a small sample. So I think that's where I stand.
1: Yeah. And I know you're like, it's not like you have an Eric Comrie poster in your bedroom where you know the guy and you've watched him play for years, but uh, I I just think (laughs) you might, I I guess I won't, I won't uh, say anything. You can't speculate these days. I can't speculate. (laughs) Um, But it's just a move. Like, I think if you're willing to risk losing Timoshev on waivers, um, I think it's a deal that makes sense. Uh, I don't really have waiver phobia. I think whether it's Timoshev, Shor, Goche, I'm okay risking it, where if, if they if they get claimed, you know, so what? Uh, we've already seen Batani go down, but um, I just think you want as many options as possible, where if, if Comrie doesn't work, then you can go to Hutchison, or you can go to Kaskasuo. Um, I don't think wall is an option at this point. And all it takes, and we saw this a bit last year, whereas if there's injuries that occur, all of a sudden you kind of lose your depth very quickly. So Eric Comrie is a player I'd be calling Arizona about. Um, there are a few last thoughts that I wanted to get to before we get out of here. Uh, one thing, I don't know if you saw this so Babcock and Keith have the same number of wins and regulation on the road. Yeah, <laughs> did you see that one?
0: a grand total of two
1: a grand total of two for both of them so they they're tied right now right. so that's right uh, the other thing I wanted to say um some just some quick thoughts here before we get out of here. one, I've loved the Matthews Nylander duo I think they're getting behind the net a lot and they just look so dangerous. Uh, that that duo has always been great, but I think as of late I've I've liked them even more. Um, another thing I'll say is I think the, the speed on the leaseback back end is is evident compared to previous years where you had you know guys like Hainesy or Polak. Uh, I I think they're they're a faster group. Maybe Cody CC aside, um, two players that are coming probably for next year. Uh, I think Sandine might even be a top four defenseman next year. I think he's going to be very good as a rookie next year. Uh, just a puck protection spe- specialist. Um, so he's going to fit that Keith system. He's he's strong. If he gets a step quicker, that's kind of the big thing. Uh, and then Lilligren's playing very well as as well. I know Keith praised him earlier in the year. Uh, if he gets a little bit stronger, uh, that's kind of key for me. He's a, he's a pretty big guy. He moves pretty well. Um He's, he's actually getting a, a fair number of points this year. I think he's got, like, 10 points already. Um, and then another player I want to give a shout-out to is Mac Hallwell, who's been kind of – he just got called back up to the AHL. Uh, just a phenomenal skater. He kind of reminds me of, like, a Victor Mete, where uh, he could skate amazing, and sometimes that's, that's good enough to get you a job at some point. So he's got a lot of work to do, but uh, I have been encouraged for them. And the Marlies are on a six-game winning streak, so – uh, they are getting outshot a bit, but they have a great power play, and and they've gotten good goaltending and that's why Hutchinson's back up. So, uh, Nick, before we get out of here, I know I've said that a few times now, and we're about an hour twelve in here. But where can people find your stuff, and why don't you give them your your Twitter handle when you're at while you're at it?
0: Yeah, uh, people can find my writing at uh, the Leafs Nation, and. You can follow me on Twitter at Nick D'Souza underscore.
1: And mine, I guess I'll say mine before I get out of here. So mine is, uh, you can find my work at Maple Leafs Hot Stove. And my Twitter handle is at KPapetti. So that's this is it for t- this week's episode of the Everything Leaves podcast. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week.